Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. secret that American politics are in crisis. Polls show that Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, are increasingly estranged from each other. Conservative red states and progressive blue states are enacting public policies that are dramatically dichotomous, and millions of people no longer trust the integrity of our electoral system. As this program is being recorded, there is no Speaker of the House of Representatives. The two leading candidates to become president in 2024, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, are both highly unpopular, and most Americans don't want a rematch of 2020. How has this crisis come to be, and what can be done about it? I thought I'd ask one of the most respected election analysts in the country to give us some insight. Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He was the Thomas W. Smith Distinguished Scholar in Residence at Arizona State University for the winter-spring 2023 semester. Olson began his career as a political consultant. After three years working for the California Assembly Republican Caucus, he went to law school, and after graduating, clerked for the Honorable Danny J. Boggs on the United States Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Olson later joined the think tank world where he served as the president of the Commonwealth Foundation, a vice president at the Manhattan Institute, and vice president and director National Research Initiative at the American Enterprise Institute. Olson left AEI in 2013 to pursue a career in political analysis and writing at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Olson's writings have appeared in a variety of leading publications throughout the United States and the United Kingdom. He is the author of The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue-Collar Conservatism, and co-authored The Four Faces of the Republican Party. Olson's biennial election predictions have been widely praised for their uncanny accuracy, and he is a frequent guest on television and radio news and commentary programs. Olson regularly speaks about American political trends and global populism in the United States, Europe, and Australia. He is also the host of the Beyond the Polls podcast. In this interview, I won't be asking Olson to take sides on the issues of the day or political personalities, but we'll be looking for his dispassionate analysis of what is going wrong in our political discourse and why. Henry, welcome to Humanize. Thanks for having me on. What got you so enthused about elections and political commentary that you would devote your career to that? 
Uh, I guess it's just kind of like an addiction. I started following politics when I was six, and I had an affinity for analysis, and I just loved diving down and seeing what numbers told me. Uh, I became a redistricting expert. It uh, moved into the polling side of political consulting, and it's just something I was doing in my spare time. And uh, the more I was doing it in my spare time, the more people said you should do it for a career, and uh, eventually I took the leap. That's funny, because when I was six, I was playing with army men. <laughs> well, I was doing that, too. I, I think I probably played more with army men. <laughs> you know, on election nights, uh, one of my primary go-tos is you're live tweeting the various races. Tell us about how you prepare for election nights and how you go about analyzing the returns. Yeah, so on election night, um, since I do this uh, in some detail all year round, the preparation is all year round. I know where the key states are going to be in a presidential race. I know which key regions to look at. I know which house races. So it's not that I prepare in the week beforehand. I'm preparing for the two years before every election. For foreign elections, when I do that, that I can't be following as much as I follow the United States, but I do follow the issues and I uh, use online sources to familiarize myself with the political geography of, of the nations that I'm looking at. Every country has a predictable pattern if one looks closely enough, and I do that to prepare myself to know where to look for, for example, in this weekend's Polish elections, uh, which I was live tweeting. And uh, did you predict it correctly? I didn't predict. I often don't predict the foreign elections. Uh -huh. um, it didn't surprise me. The polls, the polls of the polls were showing that the opposition would narrowly prevail, and they prevailed by a slightly larger margin than the polls had suggested. So it was not at all surprising. Poland's been a 50-50 country for a while, and this time the 50 tilted one way rather than the other. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> this is happening almost everywhere. Yeah. How do you keep your personal opinions out of your election analysis? Because I remember a few, um, one of the uh, earlier um, elections, there was a big brouhaha on Fox News because one of the analysts had uh, called Arizona for uh, Biden, and that created this huge ruckus. And uh, people were accusing that analyst without getting into personalities of, of, you know, predicting with his heart rather than his brain. You're very good about not putting your heart into these predictions. How do you go about doing that? You just have to decide what hat you're going to wear. You know, I have very strong political feelings, and oftentimes you can see. Uh, not when I'm doing the straight analysis, but when I'm doing a column, uh, you know, I'll make a point and the point will be data driven, but the uh, argument is in part, you know, comes from what I, uh, what I would like to happen. Uh, but on election night, you just can't do that. You know, my view is that if you're actually looking at elections, even if you have highly partisan views, what you want to do is figure out most carefully what actually happened. 
uh, you know, it's kind of like if you went to a doctor and the doctor uh, was somebody who really believed in a particular diagnosis, you probably wouldn't like going to that doctor over time because they're more likely to find the diagnosis than they are to figure out what's actually wrong with you. And that's what a lot of political punditry is. It's people who come to the game with preset conclusions and then they cherry pick. Um, and I won't do that. And how do I do it? You just, it's really just, you. if you don't have a quantitative approach to it, it's very hard to do because there's no set of unarguable facts that you go back and look at. If you're basing your political analysis on impressions and interviews, it's very hard to keep your political viewpoints out. Uh, but for me, Pretty much every election, if you have looked at the data long enough, if you looked at polls long enough, which gosh knows, after 55 years, um, I would hope that I've got enough of that experience to do that. Um, you can see what's happening, and then you just report what you see. And there's plenty of times I have predicted things that I did not want to happen, but it was clear it was going to happen. And and your reputation's at stake there, right? It is. Um, you know, everyone gets something wrong. I admittedly did not get 2022 right. It was the first time in my life that I missed the direction of an electorate. But it, as it came on election night, I knew exactly what I had done wrong. And I wrote a mea culpa that explained, hey, these were my assumptions going in. Here's why I believe that. But it didn't turn out that way. And based on the fact that it didn't turn out that way, here's what we can say. And so I was doing analysis of my analysis on election night. Uh, because that's what the data showed. The data showed I was wrong and I needed to understand why I was wrong. So it's, um, it's something that has to be a choice, not uh, an afterthought that, uh, if, if you come at this and you don't come at election analysis with the decision that you're going to see what happened regardless of what that tells you about your political persuasion, you're not going to do good in election analysis. Yeah. And you and I both have practiced law and the same thing is true when you're representing a client, you have to be able to take that step back and look at the case dispassionately or you're disserving your client. That's right. It's uh, it, it is a similar mindset. And, uh, if you can't do that, then you can't effectively argue for your client in part, because if you, can't do that. You can't see things that are either obstacles or opportunities because your passions are engaged in the case. It's why you should not represent yourself yes. in a important case. I think it's one thing if it's a small claims case, you know, you go up and it's 50 bucks either way, you know, that's not a big deal. But if, if you're a criminal defense lawyer and you're on the dock as a criminal defendant, you should probably hire another criminal defense lawyer, no matter how much expertise you have in that field. Yes. You know, it seems to me that our politics are more bitterly contested today than any time since the Civil War. Do you agree with that? You know, um, I think that's probably true, but we have had some other bitter contests. And what happens in American politics is that every 30 to 50 years, an old consensus frays at the edges because there are new voters who did not come of age during the crucible of the last crisis and new questions that the consensus of the last crisis doesn't easily answer. The principles may be applied, but they have to be thought through and applied. And so we had very contentious election in 1896. 
Uh, we had a very contentious election, uh, a series of elections around Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, you and I are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan. That was not a cakewalk. But I do think that there's a particular bitterness and anger and fear that is much more than the Reagan era and that appears to be much more than either the 1932 or the 1896 election. We really are talking about something that the founders tried to avoid, but for reasons I've advanced in one of my pieces, the constitutional framework that they created to avoid this problem no longer applies, and that is a binomial contest of values, that uh, if you have one set of people who say the best way to live is A, and another set of people who says the best way to live is B, and they can't find a way to have both A and B in some harmony, then they are going to clash, and they're going to clash bitterly and irrevocably because there is nothing that is more important to the human being than the pursuit of happiness. And that always rests on a view of the world and morality, not on economic considerations. It sounds like you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that our differences are more cultural than political. That is, the political acrimony follows from our cultural uh, divisions. It follows from different worldviews, which can be called cultural divisions. You know, that if you are somebody who believes uh, to you name one particular vector that is influencing our political division, if you believe that the Bible is the literal word of God, that leads you to certain political conclusions. If you believe that the Bible is a bunch of horrific fairy tales invented by misogynists to hold down people's that they seek to oppress, that leads you to a different set of political views. And as a result, it's the intellectual view over the source of truth, the nature of truth, the relation of human life to the truth that becomes cultural and then political. But I don't want to use the word cultural in a lackadaisical way. You know, we're not talking about whether you like Taylor Swift or right. not. What we're, and nor are we even necessarily talking about uh, certain things that have cultural affectations uh, or cultural impacts. And, you know, what we're talking about is deep-seated view of the relation of, uh, of, of human being to existence that always shapes the way a set society organizes itself. And that expresses itself in political and in cultural dynamics. And that is fraying as well. I mean, we used to have a general, it seems to me, um, agreement as to the nature of society. I mean, it was the country was primarily, I'm not talking about in a theological way, but a Christian society with kind of Christian morality as the basis. Uh, and since the 60s, let's say, um, that has certainly frayed and is perhaps um, um, the uh, changing dynamic of uh, faith and, and secularism um, the view of uh, what, uh, you know, personal choice versus moral responsibilities and so forth. Are these the things that have been changing as opposed to, say, uh, during the Cold War, uh, there was a general agreement that the Soviet Union should not uh, prevail. There might have been differences on how to make sure that didn't happen. But uh, the, these current divisions are much more existential. Yes, they are much more existential. And the change of, you know, the <sighs> Religious faith, 
provided a way to explain the relation of the human being to existence, both metaphysical and physical. When that changes, when that faith or belief in that system changes, then it's going to have political ramifications. And that is something that has been happening on and off for centuries, but it has had particular acceleration in the United States in the last 30 years. Uh, Europe experienced this much earlier than we did. That uh, One of the statistics I like to look at is that in the Netherlands, uh, you had three or four religious parties uh, representing various denominations of Catholicism and Protestantism that would regularly capture similar vote shares for about 60 years. And then from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, it completely collapses. Hmm. Uh, and uh, It was within a decade. Uh, the Dutch politics went from a politics where the Catholic Party was always in coalition to one where the Catholic Party couldn't even form its own party. It had to form with religiously observant Protestants in order to survive as Christian democracy because literally religious parties lost 40% of their vote share in the span of a decade. And it's gone down since then. And that's what we are experiencing now is that sort of de-Christianization, which does not mean the elimination of Christian belief. It, even in more secular Europe, there are still deeply religious Christians and deeply religious Jews, deeply religious Muslims, uh, increasingly in these countries. But um, it's nowhere near what it was at the end of World War II. And the influence of, of uh, religion in terms of politics seems to have abated. Although, uh, correct me if, if you disagree, it seems to me that, that the Republican Party uh, seems to attract a more conservative religious believers, and the Democrat Party tends to attract more secular liberal believers. Would that be a fair uh, generalization? Yes. Th those are the polls, is that if you are both non-denominational or... Um, um, I divide the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, into groups that you had the first wave, which was... Calvinism, which in uh, the English tradition is Presbyterianism, uh, you had Lutheranism, and you had Anglicanism. And then uh, there are various subsequent waves where Protestants broke off from those initial sects because, in their view, they weren't Protestant enough. And each of these things tended to have a decentralizing, less hierarchical approach. America is almost unique and might be unique in the Western world in that its Protestantism is primarily third and fourth wave, which is to say sects or denominations, or in the case of non-denominations, individual churches that uh, are formed after the first 200 years of the Protestant Reformation. And these have a hyper-individualistic quality. So if you are in a church that is that type of church, and you are a political conservative, you are, and you go to church regularly, you're over 90% likely to vote Republican, probably closer to 95. If you are somebody who is secular and has progressive worldviews and thinks that Christian faith is a force for ill, when there are many not all or even most, but many who believe that, you are equally as likely to be either voting for the Democrats or upset with the Democrats because they aren't progressive enough. Is this also an urban versus rural phenomenon? It is an urban versus rural phenomena worldwide, 
I would like to add. It's mm -hmm. not just in the United States, uh, but in part because of the sort of people who are attracted to these areas. You know, we should remember that the reason we call pre-Christian believers in the Greco-Roman religions pagans is because pagani is the Latin word for rural dweller. Hmm. That when Christians began to gain dominance, they gained dominance in cities first and in the countryside last. And that is what we are seeing today, which is that anywhere you are in the Western world, uh, large cities will have more secular, more liberal, small l, uh, populaces, and rural areas will have more conservative, small c, and religious populations. And in the Polish election, even in areas where the conservative Catholic-inspired political party Law and Justice does well, where they'll win like 50% of the vote in the region, they'll do worse in the cities and better in the countryside. And in areas they lose, they'll do the worst in the city, and they may win areas in the countryside, even though the region as a whole favored the opposition. It's something we're seeing everywhere. Uh, but it is as much a representation of who lives there as it is a cause in and of itself. I see. I saw a very disturbing poll from the Center for Politics out of the University of Virginia just uh, actually today as I was preparing to uh, do this interview. And it found that 31% of Trump supporters and 24% of Biden supporters believe, quote, democracy is no longer a viable system and America should explore alternative forms of government to ensure stability and progress. Does that surprise you? I wish I could say it does surprise me, uh, but I've seen enough of these polls that it doesn't. Um, you know, the fact is when you believe that your worldview faces extermination, if the other side wins a democratic election, you're going to have questions about the system that could lead to your extermination. And, you know, what I would say is that the good thing is that about that is that even in the face of our massive divisions, what the flip side of that is, is that close to 70% of all Americans, because this poll divided the country neatly into 5248, you know, didn't leave room for, uh, had Biden 52, Trump 48. There were no undecideds in this poll. Right. So what, what this means is that if 25% of um, Trump supporters don't like democracy, 75% did. You know, that's, and, the, that's always, that's interesting because, uh, you know, I focused on the negative side and you're focusing on the positive side. Well, because look, both sides have elements that are worth studying. You know, it is worrying when a quarter to a third of your country basically expresses theoretical dissent with your, with, with your governmental structure. But on the other hand, they can't prevail in a democratic system if 75% are on the other side. You know, that democracies tend not to fall by democratic vote. Um, they tend to fall when an anti-democratic minority becomes a temporary majority and then takes away the vote and uses force to impose itself. So it, when you're looking at a case where you have a minority of people who want 
to consider some f- alternative form. And of course, the poll doesn't ask what the alternative forms might be. We don't know what these people think is wrong with democracy. Uh, maybe they think it's not democratic, <laughs> you know, in the sense that they might think that they hear the word democracy in the modern context and say it's that the problem is we actually don't have rule by the people. But we, you know, when you have that poll, it's worrying. But on the other hand, they can't win unless they use force. The anti-democratic 70- people can't win. Yeah, the anti-democratic can't win. Yeah. Can't win democratically when they are that much of a minority. I should worry, as opposed to be concerned when that rises above forty percent of both sides. Same poll found that fifty-two percent of Biden and forty-seven percent of Trump supporters answered affirmatively to this question. "Quote: I view individuals who strongly support the Republican or Democratic Party." as a threat to the American way of life, which you alluded to earlier. Uh, Are we actually becoming enemies of each other? Yes, and that's the problem. Politics always has adversaries. In normal politics, you will have heated debate. But the genius of liberal democracy, as opposed to medieval republicanism or ancient democracy, is that these debates take place within a sphere of overarching citizenship that the other side is not viewed as an enemy, but is viewed as the loyal opposition. When half of each side sees the other side as an existential threat, they cannot see the other side as the loyal opposition. They are by definition the disloyal opposition. Now, the predic, you know, what that means is that if this intensifies and continues, and we don't have a political resolution, which is say that one side wins this, and then shows that there's not as much or anything to fear as the other side had thought, uh, then what you would expect to see is this number increase. And as this number increases, the share of that set of people who want radical anti-democratic change will increase. It's very worrying that we're at 50% of each side. Um, If we get it to 60 or 70% of each side, then I would start to worry that there might be an anti-democratic majority that uh, would make the continued democracy um, unstable. If people um, view each other that way, the tendency towards violence can increase also, right? Absolutely. And that has its own effect. Uh, You know, it's one of the things we saw in the Civil War period is that most people didn't believe in violence, but as people became intensely pro or anti-slavery, a small minority brought that into violence. And that's how we got the seizing of the armory at Harper's Ferry by John Brown. It's how we got bloody Kansas, where we actually had a literal shooting fighting war uh, in the United States of America in the territory of Kansas in 1857, because uh, the question of would the territory be organized as a free state or a slave state was not being handled in a peaceful manner. It was being handled with what was called Beecher's Bibles, a uh, known uh, abolitionist, uh, the um, uh, father of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, was Henry Ward Beecher. And uh, abolitionists would send guns hidden to their friends in Kansas, and they were called Beecher's Bibles. Uh, That is exactly what you see. And in a sense, we've seen attempts at political violence thus far. We've seen the crazy person who tried to shoot up the congressional Republican caucus at the softball game a few years ago. We've seen uh, the attack on the Capitol. We've seen the guy who almost made it into Justice 
designate Kavanaugh's house with zip ties. Uh, we have yet to see an assassination. Thank God. But we're heading in a way where that's not something that we should think is unthinkable because of the passions that are being unleashed and stoked in this conflict. And we also saw the New York uh, uh, gubernatorial candidate um, attacked by somebody with a knife uh, and and other things. So you're right. I think it's, it's um, you know, very close to potential 1968, which I remember terribly. And uh, um, when Robert Kennedy uh, was assassinated in Los Angeles and Martin Luther King in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, right. that led and imagine to- if that had been done by known supporters of another political movement. You know, as far as we know, uh, the each was assassinated by somebody who was unconnected or really unmotivated by the ongoing specific political disputes. Um, but imagine if Sirhan Sirhan, instead of being uh, a lone Palestinian act- man with access to the uh, back room of the ambassador hotel um, was actually a MAGA person. Yeah, you know, or the 1968 a, a, a version of of a MAGA Nixon person. Nixon Imagine if, yeah. or imagine if you know Lee Harvey Oswald uh, were somebody who was connected with a political movement. It would have been entirely different. Yeah, uh, the assassinations been- are terrible, but politically driven. You know, this is why Harper's Ferry was so important. Was because while it was disavowed by all responsible actors, it was clearly motivated by the same passions that were driving politics into what became the Civil War. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I think the Harper's Ferry raid uh, was um, probably the final straw for the South um, in terms of being willing to accept the free and fair election of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was an important consideration. Um, But... You know, we should remember that the four states of the Upper South did not secede until after Lincoln uh, said that, uh, until after Lincoln uh, tried to resupply Fort Sumter in Charleston. So even Virginia, which is where Harper's Ferry at the time was located, because West Virginia had not yet split off as a anti-Confederate, uh, sec- you know, secession from the secessionites. Um, <laughs> yeah, even then they were willing to be part of the Union if, if, the deep Southern states wanted to go, they were willing to stay. Uh, but it was the suppression of the revolt that drove those last four states over. Well, let's uh, move to our own times. I can think of four wrenching political events that I think um, pushed us in the direction that you've been describing. Uh, the first was the Clinton impeachment. What do you think about that? I, uh, I would go further back. I, certainly the Clinton impeachment was an important feature in this, but I would go back to the Bork hearings. Okay. Because... Uh, describe the Bork hearings for my listeners who may not uh, be aware yeah, of So that. Robert Bork was a distinguished academic and jurist who was appointed to a seat on the Supreme Court. And at the time, it was he had expressed in writings hostility towards Roe versus Wade. And it was thought that this might be the fifth vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Hitherto, Supreme Court nominations had not really been the focal point of public mobilization. Uh, occasionally, a mem- an appointee would be voted down, as was the case with Richard Nixon's first two appointments to the courts. Uh, and uh, but generally, if the person was smart and not corrupt, 
they would be approved. And what happened was the Democratic uh, liberals, led by Ted Kennedy in the Senate, unleashed an attack on Bork and essentially made it a political campaign by mobilizing public opinion. And Bork was defeated 55 to 45 in the Senate. And this set Republicans, particularly conservatives, um, in a different direction because they could no longer depend on a nonpartisan sense of comedy with respect to court nominations. And of course, we've seen how the court nomination process now is routinely political, but it was first 1987 with Bork, and that was, I think, the first shot in the war. And then subsequently, the Thomas nomination added to that, I guess. Exactly, because they tried it again. And again, this time, uh, what happened was it wasn't going to succeed you know, after um, there wasn't as much of voluminous writings as Bork had had. Thomas had had a, spent the bulk of his career in government rather than in the academy. And it looked like he was going to be approved on the floor when the sensational allegations of Anita Hill and sexual um, uh, harassment and perversion came up, which captivated the nation. But of course, this and this one did not succeed. Thomas obviously was confirmed, I think it was 52 to 48, um, with some people on each partisan side shifting. Um, and this too set off uh, Republicans, but the defense of Thomas set off Democrats. Right. And so what you had was another conflict over an emotional, cultural issues that has to do with the relationship of the human being to existence that um, began to inflame passions. And then uh, the Clinton impeachment, you agree, is one of the events that uh, helped push us down this road. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, preceded by the campaign of, um, uh, of harassment that conservative journalists ha uh, ran against Clinton, you know, the investigations into what he did in Arkansas, the funding of sexual harassment lawsuits with Paula Jones and others against him in the office uh, that ultimately led to the special prosecutor who is investigating financial dealings being given the authority by Clinton's attorney general to expand the investigations into other things. And that's when they uncovered his affair with Monica Lewinsky, a uh, young intern who was um, I think less than half Clinton's age. Um, and uh, this, this combined with uh, lies that Clinton said under oath in the Paula Jones sexual harassment trial is what gave rise to impeachment. But the Republicans misjudged, you know, that the Republicans thought, well, here's the president who's a pervert and a lawbreaker. And Americans of 1998 thought, oh, you're basically acting like Inspector Javert, and this is a guy who we just reelected. And we don't think that lying to protect your affair from your wife is an impeachable offense. Yeah, and and it kind of um, brought our discourse into a less, shall we say, respectable uh, level of, of of commentary. Wouldn't you agree? It did, although you know the sort of uh, media and other commentary that you would see prevalent in 1998 would look like Shakespeare compared to what we've got today. Yeah, exactly right. I think the next uh, big event was the 2000 election fight over the Florida vote. Yes, it was because, and here 
Democrats believed that they had been robbed. Um, and what actually happened as post 2000 media counting of the votes demonstrated was that Bush actually did win the election, but because of, of ballot errors and ballot design errors, Gore, many more Gore voters spoiled their ballots. But because of the closeness, it was 537 votes, um, the Gore campaign uh, believed they could overturn that through selective recounts, and this created this whole set of charges and countercharges over who was using the law to improperly elect a president against whom, when, you know, I think fairly both sides had reason, I'm not saying both sides equally had reason, but both sides had reason to say, well, actually, you're gumming the, you're gumming the game. You're caring more about winning than you are about uh, the health of the country. And that created huge animosity, especially on the Democratic side, because they were the losers in this one, much as the Bork hearings were set off by the Democrats, but the real lesson was learned by Republicans and the animosity was set because they were the losers. On this case, it was the Democrats who were the losers. And I think that helped contribute to their sense of um, alienation. And then the next uh, big event that I thought of, and obviously you can have a different opinion, was the 2000 election, 2016 election of Donald Trump which uh, I think was an explosive event, both the, um, the Trump, uh, what term should I use? Um, <laughs> unconventional approach to governing and the response to Trump, which uh, the opposition was certainly unconventional as well. Yes. But that again is set off by Trump. You know, Trump represented a worldview that uh, many people wanted to hear and that many other people thought was anathema. And so you had Trump as a symptom as much as a cause. Uh, you know, had Trump been not Trump, which is to say somebody who was capable of moderating his rhetoric, uh, capable of evolving, capable of knowing how to be both um, a shield and a sword, uh, which is what all the great presidents have been able to do is take it to their enemies, but also know how to make friends. Things might have turned out differently. Uh, but the bottom line is this is a clash of culture. The sort of person who passionately, um, you know, partisanship was rising before Trump. Some of these pews that polls that Pew have taken on this question showed the sort of, do you see your Democrats as uh, a group of people who, are wrong or a group of people who oppose America and vice versa for Republicans. These numbers were rising before Trump, but Trump really, because he sharpens the issue and is a sharply divisive personality, he sharpens the conflict. And finally, I would say the um, election of 2020, most particularly the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Yeah, absolutely. And it, but it's again, the same thing. The election of 2020, was basically the whole Trump presidency was uh, intensification of the battle set off when Trump entered the race. Uh, you saw people uh, becoming inflamed on both sides, partisanship and intensity thereof rising on both sides. And then you have the unprecedented behavior after the election that at best inspires what happened at the Capitol and at worst more. 
Yeah, and this idea that the uh, election was stolen, um, I think you've looked at that very carefully, and and uh, I know uh, that you've written about it, and the evidence isn't there for that, according to your analysis. And this is based on your dispassionate analysis, not whether you like or dislike Trump, right? Yeah, look, I don't, I'll be, you know, very clear. I don't like Trump, uh, but I did vote for him in 2020. I thought that all the things that I disliked about him were sufficiently contained that he might not be the character that I like, but he pursued policies that I liked, and I didn't think he represented a threat to the Republic. And then January 6th happens. But the fact is, if I had found evidence of fraud, I would have written that. Yes. Um, but you know, what you find is that there's a lot of anecdata, you know, is what we say in the business, you know, people who have anecdotes and stories and they flower that around as data. But if you take a look at the, the vote patterns in 2020 for all of the unprecedented rapid COVID era changes in the way we vote, bear striking similarity to every election before that. You know, places that had no motive to or no ability to for Democrats to steal votes in deep red states behaved the same way as demographically similar areas and states where fraud is alleged. Um, yeah, I could go on and on, but you know, we're, we're, we've got a nice podcast going here, and who <laughs> wants to spend twenty minutes going into every fraud theory? Um, you know, suffice to say. The way I finally figured out how to summarize it is that effectively the fraud theorists fall into one argument, which is they stuff the ballot box. And it falls into two prongs. They either stuff the ballot box by using mail ballots, which means the counting process was legal, but the ballots in the counting process were not, or they stuffed the ballot box in the counting, you know, which is what the charge is about being locked out or the Fulton County, you know, supposed ballots under the box, you know, but in the box under the desk sort of thing. And the fact is when you look at county level returns, they display none of the patterns that you would expect if you saw either of those two, two, two things happen. So let, let me just slow this down just for a second to, to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying that you analyzed the, um, the vote. Mm -hmm. who voted, how the, how these various counties voted. And mm -hmm. there was no dramatic difference in the way they voted in 2020 than the way they voted previously. And that the patterns that you have observed previously held true for 2020. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. And that you take a look at a place that has established a certain pattern because of who lives there and you uh, incorporate what Donald Trump's uh, voter approval rating was, and you come out with pretty much what you would expect. And, you know, we knew from polling and from the 2018 election result that whites with a college degree, many people held their nose and voted for Trump in those areas in 2016. They voted for Democrats in 2018. Those same areas voted for Biden in 2020. And that's exactly what you would expect to see from everything we had seen in previous area, in, pre in the previous elections. And again, it applies whether or not the state was contested. If you're in a blue collar area in a blue state, you voted for Trump. If you're in a highly educated area in a red state, you, you may have voted for Trump, but you swung in favor of Biden. 
These are not places where anybody would invest a single dime in a fraud effort. Why would you want to try and carry Tennessee through fraud? But the most educated county in Tennessee, Williamson, which is south of Nashville, was this county that swung against Trump the most from 2016 to 2020. This pattern was replicated in 2018 and all across the country and uh, is the reason why Trump lost, not purported fraud. So so basically you're saying that a, a uh, county with a particularly demographic, not not just in Tennessee, but throughout the country, you could see that these same counties shifting in each of these elections kind of in a in a uniform way. Is that right? That is exactly what I'm saying. I mean, and the thing is, I look at precinct level returns and I look at area returns. You know, I can tell you where these people live in virtually every state in the country. And places where you had formerly Democratic, white, blue collar areas turned out more for Trump and barely budged. Uh, white areas that had trended Democrat uh, in 2018 that tended to be highly educated, well off communities continue to trend against Trump compared to 2016. And it was true every state in the country. You know, I've never seen a um, phenomenon in my lifetime like Trump, Donald Trump, President Trump. Um, he takes both supporters and opponents into a level of emotional commitment uh, like nothing I've ever seen that, that I also don't think is healthy. Why do you think Trump has that effect on people? Well, because he says harsh things in clear and harsh language. And by harsh, I don't mean angry or negative things. I mean things that are at the middle of our divides. And he says it in ways that are meant to evoke a positive response. But because we're divided, they inevitably create a negative response. And as a result... And and he never tries to ameliorate. You know, a typical politician will try to say these things in ways to create supermajorities uh, or use these things and balance them off with other things. You know, like Franklin Roosevelt would say very harsh things, but he would also combine it with a positive vision that could reach across uh, the aisle. Trump is not interested in that. He is not interested in that. And uh, the way I think of Trump is uh, he is a fan of professional wrestling. He knows and is very good friends with the head people who are the owners of world wrestling entertainment, you know, WWE, the biggest wrestling brand. Um, and what Donald Trump is, is what's known in wrestling terms as a heel. He's the person who intentionally becomes the divisive bad guy. And he is the person who engenders in intense you know, some people like that, you know, and some people just hate it, but he's intended to generate audience interest by creating this conflict. And that's Donald Trump's approach to politics. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that because, in, you know, I watched wrestling as a kid. I don't anymore. But the reason to watch wrestling was the bad guy, not the good guy. Exactly. And th the good guy is the foil to the bad guy. The bad guy creates all of the interest. And in the 1980s, in the height of the Cold War and in the wake of the Iranian hostage crisis, two of the big bad guys in um, there, and it was called WWF, World Wrestling Federation, it was still the same thing owned by the McMahon Company. Two of the big heels were Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. 
and it was somebody who was uh, supposed to who was playing an open communist Nikolai Volkov of the great <laughs> Soviet Union and the iron shake would come in a turban and stuff and he was obviously the arab you know, and the iranian and and it was you, you were meant to hate these people and uh, and donald trump is the heel of uh, of uh, um World Political Entertainment, WPE. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, President Obama is also a divisive figure, and he's uh, basically the opposite of Trump. Very cool, very um, soft-spoken in many regards. He can be bitterly sarcastic. But I think he also played a part in dividing uh, this country. Do you agree with me? I do. And when he won in 2008, you know, let's step back for a minute, but between 1980 and 2008, the Republican Party had controlled the White House the bulk of the time. The Republican Party had controlled the Senate after, 19, after 1980 for at least half the time. The Republican Party had controlled the House between 1994 and 2006. Um, and suddenly... The Republican Party in the Senate and the House is reduced to numbers that have not been the case since before Ronald Reagan. They were at 30-year lows. And the percentage of the vote that Obama received seems low, 53 and change. But it was actually the highest share for a non-incumbent Democrat uh, since Andrew Jackson. Huh. He had all of the makings of the person who would create what all of his fans thought he would create, the permanent Democratic majority, and he threw it away. Why did, how did he throw it away? He threw it away by pursuing and prioritizing things that were not why he was elected. And he pursued things that the Democratic base wanted. Although, of course, the Democratic base was never satisfied with them because he didn't pursue all of them equal vigor simultaneously. But he pursued things that the Democratic base wanted, not what the broad middle of America wanted. And it is at that moment that the historic blue-collar Democrat who hadn't – you know, the Democratic Party since 1932 have been built on non-college voters either in labor unions or in rural areas and small towns or in suburbs, but uh, non-college voters, particularly non-college whites. Even in 2008, these areas voted for Barack Obama. In 2010, they did not. And they held their nose in many cases and voted for him again in 2012 against Mitt Romney. Uh, but in 2014, they switched back and then their champion arose, Donald Trump. And they've been in the Republican Party for the last seven years. It was Barack Obama's failure to understand or willful failure to disregard why he was elected that made him divisive. Let's look at um, a little more broadly. Um, at the Democrats and Republicans, how have the Democrat uh, Party agendas added to our divisions? And then we'll ask about the same question about the Republicans. I'm going to try and do this dispassionately. I'm a Republican, so that your listeners know where I'm coming from. Um, I'm not a MAGA Republican. I'm what I call populist conservative. So I have disagreements with Republican Party orthodoxy. 
the Democratic agenda at the national level is very out of step with where the center of American public opinion is. It's not necessarily that the center of public opinion is in opposition to aspects of the agenda. It's the speed and the comprehensiveness of the agenda that they have problems with. Uh, and I'm thinking of things like the rapid expansion of government spending, the rapid uh, expansion of a green agenda. Um, and on cultural questions, there's a dispute within the Democratic Party about how to move. But the elements of the Democratic Party that are particularly um, aggressive about questioning American identity, that are particularly explosive about things like trans rights for, for children, uh, they're not the majority of the Democratic Party. Although on various of these things, they are close, but they are a large minority that has yet to be firmly disregarded by the Democratic Party. So in that sense, the tail wags the dog. And what that has done is help um, stoke fears. Uh, and, uh, you know, now, and there's a whole bunch of other things that have been done. But, you know, the rapid desire for transformational change scares middle America and inspires fear and anger in center-right America, and that has helped divide the country. And the same thing, I think, could be said about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that's the thing with the Republican agenda, is that the Republican agenda um, advances uh, a rapid uh, transformation away from, you know, it has yet to be enacted because it is not where the center of Americans are, but Americans don't want more tax cuts and balancing the budget on the backs of entitlement cuts. But that's the default Republican agenda. The Re center of America does not want a country where profession of faith in Jesus Christ and attending church is considered the rites of passage for first-class citizenship. But there are many in the Republican Party who openly believe that and say that. Um, and, and so what you have is an agenda that the center of both parties pursue that alienates the middle. And you have strong minorities in each party that push divisive cultural issues to the forefront that sparks fear, loathing, and discomfort both in the middle and in the partisans. You know, like imagine the person who thinks that um, the person who thinks that a 13 year old should be able to change their sex without their parents' knowledge. And there are these people, many of them within the Democratic Party. Imagine what that person inspires in the person who goes to the local Baptist church twice a week. Yeah. And believes in the, that the Bible is the literal world of God. And imagine the converse of that. This is where you have the disassociation from the middle and the infuriation of the extremes. And it's the combination of these things that's creating the politics. And again, I'm not going to try and say this is 50% right down the middle on both sides and who's more to blame. The fact is, this is we have a binomial division on values and both sides are playing the game. There's not one simple we're on defense, they're on offense. And these are issues that are hard to compromise. I mean, abortion, if you're pro-life, you believe it's the uh, completely unethical uh, 
taking of human life. And if you're pro-choice, you believe that abortion is a fundamental liberty interest for women. And and those are that's an issue, much like slavery, it seems to me, that's pretty difficult to compromise about. That's one of the reasons why this is so difficult, is that when there is no ground for compromise, one side must win. And when one side must win, that means the other side must lose. Now, the positive way out of this is, you know, let's take a look at the religious wars in Europe. If Europe is agreed that the way to salvation is through Christianity, and there are two versions of Christianity, there is a Protestant version and a Catholic version, then there's no way to compromise. And if and, and the third thing is if you agree that it's the role of the state to procure salvation or to facilitate salvation. And this creates the religious war. The religious wars end in part because of exhaustion. But the religious wars end when you begin to find a way to compromise, which is first the idea that all of Christendom need not share the same Christianity. So you can view, and this is the uh, this principle of the religion of the ruler is the religion of the state. So you'd have German principalities where the ruler would be Lutheran and the state becomes Lutheran, places where they're Catholic and so forth. And you have movement of populations uh, back and forth. But what that does is say the victory need not be total. And then what you begin to see is the development of modern liberalism, which is to say, actually, we can create a theory of the state that takes the state out of the facilitation of salvation. It says salvation is a matter that we will leave to private dispute and people can pursue salvation how they see fit. And this is the beginning of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. Um, you create a third way so that it's no longer existential. And that's what we need in America is we need either a principle of federalism, which say we will no longer move towards creating one sense of American morality, which has been the trend since the Civil War, using the 14th Amendment and the expansion of federal powers. And that would mean California can be California, and Alabama can be Alabama, and Ohio can like flip the coins in the middle however they want to see fit. Uh, the other would be finding a new definition of American liberal democracy that defuses the existentialism of it. When one of those two things happens, then the fear that drives the polarization will go away and the polarization will go down. Uh, but in the absence of one of those two things happen, it will go up and it will increasingly be driven by a sense of we must win. And the thing is, when you believe that we must win, you create and are open to structures so that the other side can never win. Yes. And that's when the liberal democracy starts to fade. Yeah, and you see a lot of um, uh, argumentation now in the, in the society that um, our side has to win or democracy is over. I mean, you see that on both sides of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when you already have reached that conclusion, democracy is over at least liberal democracy, because the logic of that means that 
the things that uh, permit them to compete on an equal footing have to be restrained. Mm -hmm. That means people who hold certain viewpoints need to be suppressed in violation of our longtime commitment to free speech. But this is the way most entities govern themselves for most of human history. Liberalism is a blip on human history. And if we, if we think we live in a time that is uniquely tolerant and uniquely peaceful and uniquely prosperous, we should embrace the things that got us there. Yeah. And that does not mean a return to the Weltanschauung society, which is to say the society that by definition defines what the existent relationship between the human and existence is and imposes a unity through force. That is what most societies have been like in human history. So you're saying that actually what we consider to be the norm, which was the uh, um, mutual respect, uh, you know, the um, loyal opposition you were talking about previously, is actually a unique thing rather than the standard uh, approach in, in organized society. And that what we need to do is hold on to what is unique to our era uh, and not so quickly be willing to cast it aside. Exactly. Because if you cast it aside, if there is no such thing as a loyal opposition, if your opponents are your enemies rather than adversaries, there are, there are steps to that logic that lead away from peaceful debate and the peaceful resolution of political disputes. We're running out of time, and I'd like to actually... Uh, have you back another time to get into some of the details about how that could be done in your opinion. But um, I do want to ask you, uh, what areas do we still agree on? There must be some. Well, I think uh, there is a large scale agreement that the American Republic is good and worth preserving and worth renewing. Uh, I do not think that there is a majority viewpoint for the idea that America is uh, fundamentally a corrupt nation or that uh, the American promise is founded on fiction. So what that means is that the, if there's going to be a renewal, there needs to be, as there always has been in American history, a reinterpretation of this that people on one side of the divide can see themselves having comfortable, dignified lives. Uh, and this can come from either side. Uh, but you have to make the argument. And, can't the and you have to make the argument in a way that is consistent and compelling. It, you, it, it's not the sort of thing, you know, this is one of the problems we have it used to be that people who tried to lead this country actually thought about the problems themselves. And increasingly, the people who tried to lead this country outsource that. And you see it in the debased nature of presidential candidate speechifying, that they are increasingly not arguments, but assertions mm. that are driven by calculus. You cannot create a new majority on the basis of assertions driven by calculus. You have to derive a new majority that builds on this understanding as a result of understanding and argument. 
And I think there's still room for that, but it has to come from the top. It has to come from somebody who wants it, somebody who's thinking, not somebody who is simply, you know, I have no problem with polls. I have no problem with calculation. Lincoln was, had no polls, but he was a great calculator. Uh, all the great statesmen are great politicians first, but the question is who's serving whom, who's the servant and who's the master is the poll, the servant of the statesman, or is the statesman actually a politician who is a servant of the poll? And all too often it's the latter in this country. And until that time, we won't get the renewal until that changes. We won't get the renewal that we need. Does our media environment also impact that? Well, it helps impact that. Um, but you know, my argument is that if you think about things yourself and it comes out in your speeches and your rhetoric, you can then leave it to your assistants to bite it up and use media to, uh, to communicate it in ways that are amenable to today's media and the sound bites, you know, that you, you look at, um, Lincoln's house divided speech and it's a finely crafted argument that contains sound bites hmm. that you can assert things with, but because governing is not about assertion, governing is about thinking. Um, the fact that it exists, even if it's being cannibalized elsewhere, is a sign and a template which the person who's going to govern would actually use because they've thought through the problem. Uh, so I, you need to resist the temptation to avoid thinking because you think that's the way to communicate and instead invest in the thought and trust people to find out how to communicate it using the platforms of the day. And what can we, uh, who are, you know, political supporters or followers or the average citizen, what can we do to ease these tensions? Um, well, first of all, um, there's a number of things. Uh, you can not participate in the, rhetor the rhetoric that serves no purpose other than to inflame on both sides. Uh, you can be very staunchly pro-life or very staunchly pro-choice, but uh, you can make arguments rather than angry assertions and engage only in vituperative social media attacks. So that's the first thing that you can do without abandoning your convictions. Use a, a different tone of approaching political issues. Uh, you can also decide whether or not uh, the constitutional baby is worth throwing out with the political bathwater. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the other side being an enemy, we're saying constitution is an impediment to our, and uh, the, the norms that are not written in it, but that we have adopted are impediments to our holding and wielding political power. And at some point you have to say, actually, it's more important that we retain that system than it is that we hold political power in all of the manifestations that it has. 
so those are two things that I think everybody can engage in with without changing their viewpoints or then changing their intensity about those viewpoints. But you know, deciding what your prior, you know, deciding that you care more about America than you care about victory, uh, and deciding that the way you're going to engage in political discourse and political activity is going to be sharp, but not offensively inflammatory. Yeah, being uh, able to lose graciously is part of the democratic experiment. Uh, absolutely. You know, when uh, John Adams, who hated Thomas Jefferson in 1800, they'd later become friends, but the election of 1800 is every bit using the media of their day as harsh and derogatory and bitter as our day. When he hands over power to Thomas Jefferson, it's the first time in history that uh, bitter opponents transferred power peacefully. That's even more important when you think about it than Washington stepping aside. Because Washington stepped aside for a friendly, you know, uh, successor. Uh, Now, John Adams didn't attend the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson, but he did uh, peacefully uh, uh, exchange power. And that really was a dramatic event in the history of the world. yeah, Washington shows that the American Republic was not going to f- descend into Caesarism. And what Adam shows that the American Republic can actually govern itself. Interesting. Uh, I'd be remiss uh, not to ask you about your podcast because I'm a listener. And uh, uh, I just uh, let uh, the audience know what you do in your podcast and how they can find it. And uh, there will be a link in the program notes. My podcast is called Beyond the Polls, and every two weeks, and we'll go weekly after Thanksgiving, uh, we, I sit down and I talk with the best political analysts in the country and the best reporters, and we cover what the state of the races are. As we get closer to the even-numbered year, we'll start covering Congress uh, as an addition to the presidential race. We'll uh, also take a look. I try each week to have a television ad, and I call it Ad of the Week. And I try and explain to you what the thing that these strategists and candidates are trying to do. Most people come into contact with political campaigns through an advertisement, uh, usually on television still, sometimes through video, but it's the same sort of thing and uh, same intention. And I break down an ad and I say, look, this is who they're talking to, and it may not be you. But there's a strategy behind it. And if an ad is good, everything aligns, the message, the visuals, the audio, so that it makes, within a 30-second framework, a compelling case to the person they are talking to who is essential to the election of their campaign. And I try and educate my listeners so that they are savvier consumers of political material. Uh, and. Uh, if that doesn't interest you, you know, maybe my podcast isn't for you. But uh, if it does, my podcast is definitely for you. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if politics was fun again? Oh, well, <laughs> let's not bicker about who killed who. <laughs> well, Henry, thank you very much for being with us. I, I just found it very interesting and very informative, and I'd like to have you back again. I'd love to be back. Thank you for having me on, Wes. Thank you, Henry. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities.
Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.